Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday, the 18th of October. We're edging towards a long weekend here in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And the stats are showing we're receiving a lot of new downloads in Scandinavia, especially Sweden and Finland. So welcome if you've joined us for the first time from that part of the world. In today's business and finance headlines, officials and leaders from all over the world are in Beijing to attend a high-level summit marking the Belt and Road Initiative's 10th anniversary. State media reports that 4,000 delegates representing 140 countries and 30-plus international organizations are attending. Russian leader Vladimir Putin arrived in Beijing yesterday and is expected to address the forum as its chief guest and meet President Xi later on today. The US Department of Commerce announced Tuesday that it planned to curb the sale of more advanced artificial intelligence chips to China. The new export restrictions will restrict the export of NVIDIA's A800 and H800 chips. Senior administration officials said the restrictions could also affect chips sold by Intel and AMD. The Biden administration also added two Chinese AI chip startups to a trade restriction list that mandates companies to obtain a U.S. government license before shipping to those firms. U.S. retail sales came in much stronger than expected last month. The U.S. Commerce Department said retail sales climbed 0.7% in September, well above economists' consensus estimates of a 0.3% rise. The figure compared with an upwardly revised 0.8% climb in August. And excluding autos, gas, building materials and food services, retail sales rose a robust 0.6%, surpassing expectations for a flat reading. The stronger-than-expected data sent short-term Treasury yields to their highest level in 17 years. The two-year Treasury yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, rose 12 basis points to 5.22%, its highest level since 2006 when the yield reached 5.27%. The 10-year Treasury yield climbed as much as 15 basis points to 4.85%. That's near a recent 16-year high. Swaps markets are now pricing a roughly 50% chance of a further Fed rate rise by the end of the year, compared with 37% odds on Monday. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sam Bever, CEO at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. U.S. stocks were flat on Tuesday as government bonds remained under pressure after stronger-than-expected retail sales data fueled concerns over tighter monetary policy. The S&P 500 closed unchanged at 4.373. The Dow added 13 points, or under 0.1%, to close at 33,998. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.3% to 13,534. Semiconductor stocks tumbled on Tuesday after the Biden administration moved to tighten exports of advanced computer chips to China. NVIDIA shares were down 4.7%, while Broadcom shed 2%. Oil prices paired their losses into the close on the back of reports that the White House has been discussing the possibility of using military force if Hezbollah joins the war in Gaza. 
And that's something that's seen as more likely after the 500 deaths reported in the wake of a Gaza hospital collapsing amid a rocket attack. Brent crude settled 0.3% higher at $89.90 a barrel. The US dollar index was unchanged at 106.19. The dollar dropped earlier in the day against the Japanese yen after Bloomberg reported the BOJ is mulling raising its inflation forecasts. It later recovered to end the day 0.2% firmer at 149.77 yen per dollar. The Chinese yuan was weighed down by ongoing concerns about defaults in the property sector. Onshore yuan closed at 7.31 renminbi. Mainland Chinese shares recovered from early losses to end the morning session in positive uh, territory. The Shanghai Composite closed a third of a percent higher at 3,084. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was slightly higher after closing at its lowest level in over a month on Monday. The city's benchmark index climbed 133 points or 0.8% to 17,773. And here in Hong Kong today, looks like the Hang Seng's going to open another 20 points or so higher. That's about 0.1%, just below 17,800. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. Our regular Thursday morning guest is here with us, Enzio Ronfall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And also joining us, Sam Favreau, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning, Sam. Morning, Peter. So officials and leaders from all over the world are in Beijing to attend a high-level summit marking the Belt and Road Initiative's 10th anniversary. State media reports that 4,000 delegates representing 140 countries, 30-plus international organisations are attending. Vladimir Putin there and he's going to address the forum as its chief guest today and then meet President Xi later on and just a reminder the last time uh, that Vladimir Putin was in Beijing was when China and Russia announced their unlimited partnership and President Xi is going to give a keynote speech later today he's going to outline a new blueprint for high quality Belt and Road cooperation. Um, NGO and Sam um, obviously this is a big event uh, it's the 10th anniversary, so I suppose it's a good opportunity to look at, you know, has it done what it was supposed to do? Has it been a success, do you think? Well, I think it has to the extent that the Americans have been caught a little bit off guard. They weren't, in, in places like Africa, they just weren't really doing what they should, and that's why they're trying to scramble to get things done. And I think in that sense, it's been a foreign policy um, success for the Chinese. Also, of course, in Middle Asia, um, but I just want to warn on the Russia-China relationship, that relationship has been bumpy for many, many centuries, at least since the Cossacks attacked the Mandarins many, many in 1644. So um, we don't want to kill ourselves if that's a cozy relationship. But back to the Belt and Road, it's a, it's, a, it's a foreign policy success. To what extent it's a financial success, I'm told that the people are too indebted, countries are too indebted, and whether the infrastructure projects are really so great, I just don't know. It is impressive, isn't it, that you can get delegates from 140 countries together in, in one place. I don't think the US or any, anywhere in Europe will be able to do that. Well, I think if you can get free money, uh, to some extent, people will gather. So I, will, I think that's the reason. Is that so the reason? I think it is more or less the reason if they can get a blank check, which I don't think they will get this time because uh, obviously a lot of things have changed in China in the last 10 years. But uh, I think that's why you get so many people um, 
is showing up and it also shows that the soft power of, uh, of China has clearly yeah. increased a lot in the last 10 years. Mm. So I think if you measure success by that factor, it's definitely a success. Financially, I think it's a completely different story between the high indebtedness that was mentioned, the actual only marginal increase in trades in those countries, and also the actual defaults that uh, China has to um, has to deal with now. So, I mean, it's uh, I think it's very great. I mean, I think from a Xi Jinping point of view, it was all about uh, foreign policy and you know soft mm. power. That clearly is a factor now. It could backfire because I think they put a lot of resources which they could have actually used on the domestic market and that costing now a lot to the Chinese and the Chinese economy and that could put further pressure because they have to deal with domestic issues and uh, clearly they have diverted one trillion which uh, they could have used somewhere else. Mm. I mean if you look at how it was presented uh, at the beginning um, President Xi touted this as a, an economic win-win for, for everyone. He said other countries, for other countries, these investments would stimulate development. And then from Chinese perspective, it, it was sold as a way to help Chinese econ- uh, companies boost the economy. Um, and I suppose that from a trade perspective, you have to say it has been a success for China, hasn't it? There's been about $19 trillion worth of goods traded between China and BR countries in the past decade. So I suppose, NGO, from that perspective, it's also been a, a success for China. It's been a success, but again, I would be a little bit leery of the trade numbers because so much of what they are importing, probably of what they're exporting, probably initially has to be in a big way imported in order to just make the finished goods. So um, the it's it's the trade surplus that counts, as we all know, at the end of the day, which is still pretty big, but that has other reasons with multinationals. So I think, yes, it is but again, from the developing countries' perspective of themselves, I think they're probably in deep hock, and I think that's where the tensions will arise later on. Mm. Has it helped their development, Steve? Uh, because that was how it was presented. It would help the development of, of, of these countries like Sri Lanka, the Maldives, African countries. Oh, I, yeah, I'm sure it has, because if the Chinese have gone in there and built a rail system, for instance, and of course that's going to help things get going, um, it's just, I don't know... To what extent, I'm told, again, this is just anecdotal, that a lot of the laborers are actually imported from China. So the so-called multiplier effects of local labor being engaged in the building of these railroads may be limited. That's caused a lot of sort of um, upheaval and discontent in in some of those countries because they've seen a lot of uh, foreign labor brought in and and not their own uh, citizens being employed. Uh, Sam, what, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's that, that's one of the main problems because yeah, you had this <coughs> initial boost of uh, you know consumption, import, and trades because of this fixed asset development. But then the quality and uh, the performance of these assets is you know very uh, debatable. I mean, if you look at these Sri Lankan ports which are not being used, mm. well. Has it really helped the development of the economy? Probably may even have been counterproductive because now they're stuck with debt, which they don't know how to deal with, yes. and they can't do anything with that. Same with the railway system. It's all fine to have a railway system, but if no one, nobody can afford or, or you know, even maintain this railway system, long-term it's a non-performing asset with a pile of debt. So I think it's too early to say whether it has been beneficial. I think short-term, yes, there was a boost. It seems medium-term, obviously, there has been a, a lot of friction because most of the benefits has been towards China. Now, whether China will rebalance this, it's, I think, one of the uh, 
big objective of this uh, this summit but i'm not sure at this stage it's um it's very very clear mm. and again the benefits has been also rebalancing i think part of this thing has been the loss of uh, influence of russia so if you look at Kazakhstan, the whole Central Asia, I mean, it hasn't been a win-win. It's been a win-loss situation with one of the bigger players actually now being pushed back. And and, Pres- and uh, Vladimir Putin, he goes to Beijing really considerably weakened, doesn't he, compared to when uh, the Belt and Road project first, uh, first started. I mean, uh, Russia's economy, his position, it's very much the junior partner to China. Well, he needs somebody to buy his oil so uh, and his gas, so that's China. And he needs also the, uh, the spare parts from China, so now he's definitely under, under Xi Jinping. So, again, the relationship is, yeah. is a very tricky one. And I think, yes. you know, it's, as, as Andrew sound, as I mentioned, it's, historically it's been very, very bumpy. So I think it's more a uh, alliance of circumstances than a, yes. a very, very long-term friendship, that one. <coughs> mm. I mean, one thing that has changed now for, for China is it's now the world's biggest international creditor. Um, but the problem is we, we don't really know what the true scale of the debt is, do we? Because a, a lot of these loan agreements are sort of shrouded in, um, in secrecy. All we, all we tend to find out is when they go wrong and, and countries can't pay them that we start to see sort of the size and, and the terms of these loans. But that presumably, this is one of the common criticisms of the Belt and Road Project. It's, oh. it's been a debt trap for countries like Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Laos, Kenya, and they just can't afford this debt at the moment. Yes, it's that, but it's also that with China's lacking legal system, unless all of these loans are done out of London or the US or Hong Kong, indeed, um, there's going to be a lot of legal wrangling just about who owes whom how much money. So I think that's, that's another factor that needs to be sort of put into the stew. Isn't that a role for Hong Kong, maybe, going forward in the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, I would have thought if they could still speak English here, yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, the China's having to fork out more money, though. I mean, it's lent, what, a trillion dollars, we think, or has been estimated. Yes. But it's now having to fork out more money to help the borrowers make the payments on, on time. So this is not good for China either. Well, yeah, I think it's very, very, uh, it's very bad. And it's all about credit control and credit quality. And whether China has overstretched uh, itself, uh, given the amount of domestic debt, they already have to potentially restructure it at the SOEs and local government levels. So I think they're, very, they're working a very, very tight, uh, tight rope on that one. And I think they will do everything just to avoid, you know, plain default. But I mm. think the quality of debt out there is much worse than, uh, than it's actually reported. And, you know, there's, it's not because China or anywhere else in the world. We know those countries, they default regularly every 10 years. So that's not going to change because it's China's debt. Mm. They're going to default. So should China cancel this debt? It doesn't want to, well, it's saying it won't, but maybe it's going to be forced into the position where it might? No, I think it's like the, like, like the US and like the EU. It's, it's just, it's, it's stuck with this yoke of non-performing loans and they're then traded in secondary markets by guys like you, Peter. And um, then that, that sort of just keeps on going around in a, in a merry circle. Mm. So what does the second decade <laughs> bring for the Belt and Road Initiative? Presumably it can't expand as fast as it did in the first 10 years, partly because China hasn't got the money anymore to, to finance um, a lot of these projects. So what does the second decade of Belt and Road bring? Well, I would hope it brings some education to the local population because it's fine and good building bridges and roads and um, buildings to nowhere, but if, if people aren't educated, and I again thump the drum of this German vocational training, which the Austrians and the Swiss are also very good at, it is really for not that you build railroads because these 
big infrastructures do not create exports in themselves. People still have to create manufacturing jobs off the back of that to then export the goods. I think for the initiatives now, I think they're going to be a lot more targeted as well in value creation. I think those bigger infrastructure just blind just to acquire soft power, that's, that's done. They don't have the money to do it. So it's all going to be, I think there will be renegotiations behind the, behind the curtains anywhere at this one. And then the next phase will be, uh, you know, much more conservative and much more high value projects. And the big question is also going west because one of the idea was the Silicon Road was supposed to go back to Europe. And that obviously has been a total failure because at the end of the day, that's really where they want to penetrate. And so far, there's now a big pushback against, uh, against China and Europe. If you look at Italy and all those places. So I think except Horbon, there's no one from the Belt and Road Initiative yes. anymore in, in Beijing. So I think it's going, to, it's going to be interesting to see. There will be adjustment in terms of uh, foreign policy uh, you know, position from Xi Jinping trying to move back into the West because eventually that's what he wants if he wants to uh, make money. Mm. And what about Hong Kong's role in it? John Lee is there. He spoke at the CEO conference um, yesterday. What's Hong Kong's role in the Belt and Road Initiative? This is a very good question, Peter. I think there must be a legal role. There must be a banking role in all of this because with China increasingly closing its own doors to the outside world, I think that we, just by default, will have an opportunity to, to shine a little bit more as an international center. But if they keep on insisting on having happy Hong Kongs and night stall um, boost to the economy, then I don't think we're going to go very international on that kind of stuff. So, um, but I think there is an opportunity here, at least for the legal firms here and for the banking firms to help structure some of these debts and, and get these workouts going? I'm not sure myself, because the last 10 years Hong Kong rule has been marginal, to say the least. Uh, I think all these negotiations are at a very, very high level, and they don't necessarily want transparency. That's something we have seen. So except if there's really political will to start completely internationalized and make it those, those that tradable and transparent, uh, I'm not sure there's really, uh, there's really a role for Hong Kong to play. So I don't think it depends on Hong Kong itself. It will be a Beijing decision. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's also a big day for uh, economic data from China. The National Bureau of Statistics releases today third quarter GDP growth figures. Also, we have retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment, the unemployment rate and the house price index. And then on Friday, the PBOC will decide its loan prime rate um, as well. Enzio, we've seen a lot of data come out leading up to this um, in the in the last few days, we had the uh, the inflation data, mm. which showed that the consumer price index back at uh, zero. We also had the trade data. Exports seem to be um, doing a bit better than expected, although still declining. But mm. what are you expecting from the data today? What's it going to tell us about the Chinese economy? I think that it's going to remain. The economic time is going to remain characterized by an excess supply of money and an excess supply of goods. In other words, it will continue just going south for a long, long time. The improvement in the data that we've seen of late really has more to do, in my mind, with the base effect of the low base numbers coming out of the COVID era that, that we're now still measuring things off. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that kind of is a little bit illusion. It's, it's an illusion to then think that it's all the place is bottoming out and going up. I don't think it's a soup bowl. I think it's just a, it's a piece of wood 
that isn't going to go anywhere until the private sector is allowed to get back to what it's good at, which is creating demand-driven jobs. Mm. Well, if, if we look, just a reminder of what the data was in the previous mm. quarters, in the first quarter, uh, the growth rate, rate was 4.5%, so it was 6.3% in the second quarter. If you look at a poll of economists, they're expecting GDP in the third quarter to be 4.4%. So we're sort of trying to claw our way to that 5% uh, target, aren't we? Yeah, but again, I mean, anybody who's done national accounts knows that you can fiddle these things. Um, if you know, if, if I were to go into a room of economists and say, which I of course have looked up, what's so gross about gross domestic product? I probably get a lot of yawns. Um, what's actually how much you depreciate the national capital stock by? How interesting, isn't that fascinating? And that's how you measure GDP. So that's that's it's, it's all about funny numbers, basically. Mm. Sam, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about this? I mean, the, I suppose the big problem for, for China's economy at the moment is that the consumer and the mm. businesses, their confidence is weak. And now we've got even more uncertainty internationally in, in the environment for Chinese exports with a, a war raging in the Middle East as well now. Well, the problem with Chinese economy is we're not in the middle of a cyclical upturn or downturn. We're in the middle of a structural change. Mm. And that's very, very long term. And... To be fair, if we look where we are, we're very similar to where we were in Japan back in the 90s, beginning of the 90s, which is, you know, excess fixed capital investment, starting of slowing uh, decreasing population, uh, starting of deflation. So, and if you learn from history and experience, we're looking for 10 years at least, if they do things right, to adjust. And I think it's going to be even probably more challenging for, for China because you have this whole supply chain adjustment, which is also a movement which is going to last for the next 10 to 20 years. So whatever is the, 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 the volatility of the short-term numbers is, to be fair, very, very relevant. What they need to find now is the new driver growth. It can't be fixed asset investments. They have to boost consumption, and they have to find new driver, of course. And I think the world has to find new growth drivers because we had the Internet, you had the AI, I think, but now we need to find some new, new drivers. And China is you know, double concerned by that. Is, is, so then is, is Japan the good comparison now for where China is um, at the moment? That comparison is often made, isn't it? And, uh, and talk about a balance sheet recession, which, which uh, Japan faced at the beginning of the 1990s. Do you think um, that's uh, the, the, the correct comparison, uh, comparator for China where it is now? I see it a little bit differently. I think that with China, it's the centralization and it's this pushing the private sector back into the corner and saying that we, the state, knows, know where things have to go. Um, and that then, and I can understand that to a degree because the property developers did create a lot of havoc. I mean, just to set a couple of numbers, holiday sales based on gross floor area over the China's National Day holiday fell by 79%. That's a big number. Mm. Um, and if people don't have... If the, if the value of their properties goes down anywhere in the world, they don't feel rich, they don't feel confident to consume. And I think that's, that's something that um, is going to keep on hitting China for a long, long time because the lacking legal system means there will not be debt workouts. So I think that there, as, as Sam was saying, there are a lot of structural issues that are also, and I think that with this new um, Central Finance Commission being built, Yet again, another tack on rung on the board of the centralization of the Chinese economy. Mm. 
And Sam, it's interesting that China's following Japan in other ways as well. So talk of this stock market stabilization fund, mm. uh, for example. I don't know if you remember, but back in the beginning of the 1990s, in 1992, I was living in Japan then, uh, Japan launched what they called a price-keeping operation, which was basically a stabilization fund to try and support the market. But it didn't really work out uh, that well, other than give a short-term boost to, to the markets. But it didn't really um, achieve its desired effect. So it is this going to be any different China's stabilization fund well yeah well it was a complete failure to to be fair uh, if you look at the market in the 90s and the, the market at the end of 2000 it was uh, it halved or more than that so uh, same cause same effects uh, you will have stabilization at a certain level you will have a bit of a liquidity effect but then first it has a huge fiscal uh, fiscal cost on everyone because it's still public money so you have to finance it and secondly it doesn't address the, the the core problem and the core problem is all these asian markets is the focus on shareholder value i think that's fundamentally a big difference between what you're seeing in the u.s market where you know they're obsessed with shareholder value whereas in uh, in asia the stock market is just a, a source of liquidity but the focus is not on share value creation and until you fix that those uh, unfortunately i think those regional markets are always going to underperform on the on the long term mm. it's, it's interesting i mean where uh, the shanghai composite actually reached an all-time high almost exactly 16 years ago um, on October the 16th 2007 it reached a high of 3000 um and 84 um, basically it's halved since then so it tells you that so how is this value was there value creation sorry i got that wrong no it closed at uh, 3084 is where it is now it closed at 6092 in back in 2007 october the 16th it's halved now at 3084 so was that liquidity bubble type of rally? I mean, I think history proves it was. Uh, and the problem is when you have those bubbles, you can actually decrease by a lot more. Mm. So we have decreased by 50%. But, you know, if you look at big bubbles, they can decrease your stock valuation by 90%. Yes. And that's, you know, if you don't do anything to start really structuring those, uh, these markets in a way that really value creation is transferred to shareholders, I think that's where you lose confidence. And it's not because you're putting a, a, stabilize, a stabilizing fund, which is going to bring the confidence back. Yeah, people will play short term, play the rally until it just fiddles out and start selling again. The real litmus test for China is not growth, it's the employment data. And I think that the, 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 the fact that they're not even publishing the youth unemployment data is telling in itself. It speaks volumes. And um, again, you can fiddle with all these statistics. We all know about these tricks in any country in the world. But I think that's the key is just the, the mandate of heaven to create prosperity within China. That's where I think that's going to be the real litmus test to what extent employment and thus consumer and income confidence is recreated again. Do you think we're going to see any signs of some green shoots for consumer spending in this data? We'll see the retail sales data um, later this morning. It's been basically consistently poor this year isn't it well again it will come off the back of a lower base and so of course it looks a little bit better um but it's the let's not kill ourselves these are illusions it's a little bit with all these stimuli measures that the government is trying to implement it's a little bit like trying to pump up an inner tube of a bicycle but the inner tube has a hole in it it just keeps on going out the other end. So that's what I think is happening in China, that these stimulus measures, these stimulus measures just aren't going to really do it either because the, until, as we all agree, I think, until consumer confidence is back, it's going to go nowhere in a hurry. 
And I think to have consumer back, you need to make sure your kid has a job and uh, your source of savings is stabilized. Yeah. So until you have those two factors, you're, not, you're very unlikely to yes. have a, a huge boost in consumer yeah. confidence. Yeah. So you have to clear that massive debt entrapment they have on the real estate sector. And it's not done yet. I mean, we still have Evergrande in two weeks, two, two weeks negotiations. No one knows how that's going to turn out. And one of the problems is they don't have a full legal system to negotiate those big potential bankruptcies. And then you have to uh, deal with the unemployment of youth. Then once it's done, then you might start a new cycle. But again, uh, this new cycle needs to be driven by new growth drivers, and that has to be redefined. I mean, I don't think what they are now. I can't see what they are yet. Well, the government seems to be relying more on infrastructure. It's going to yeah. increase the fiscal deficits to basically put more money into infrastructure. How many more roads and bridges can you build? It's a back, to, back to inflating the inner tube that has a hole in it. How many roads, bridges can you build? It's a bit like these, this housing boom that we saw before 2021, I believe. And then all these buildings were crazily built, but now they're all empty. Mm. But they're going to rely, I think, on different types of infrastructure now. They're going to go more green and talking about sort of, you know, green initiatives in terms of the infrastructure spending. But at the same time, the problem is um, that there isn't really the money for it, is there? Well, there is if you borrow until you, can borrow, until you cannot borrow and you have to repay. I don't think they're facing that yet, but uh, at some point they will need to do choices. And, you know, we discussed one belt, one wrong initiative. If you start doing this on, on domestically, then you cannot do it offshore. So, and at some point, if you need the money, we'll start aggressively going for your money back. So I think it's, uh, it's going to a point where there is going to be a potential um, debt issue. Uh, I mean, it's not only China, to be fair. That's, I think it's a global problem. But there will be at some point a bit of reckoning on uh, a day of reckoning yes. on that. <coughs> Is that what the bond markets are signalling? Is that why we're seeing all this volatility at the moment in the bond markets? We've had another big sell-off again overnight in, in US Treasuries. They're, they're, it seems to be, you know, we get alternate now between risk-on, risk-off days where, you know, uh, stocks rally, Treasury bond yields fall, and then we get the reverse of uh, sort of the following day. But what's all this volatility telling us? Is it telling us that there's concerns now about the amount of debt around at these much higher um, levels of interest rates? No, I think, uh, well, especially if we're talking about the U.S. bond market, I don't think default is really uh, too no, much on the, uh, on the table. I think it's really adjustment in terms of, uh, of monetary uh, policy adjustment. I mean, interestingly, it's been very, uh, I, th I think the long term is more or less priced in, and you can see the 10 years has been more or less now in this narrow range. It's more the short end, which is reacting more uh, in the U.S. So it's, I think the market is going to be more reactive on the short end and the long term at this stage, except if we have another shot like U.S. engaging in, the, uh, in a war in Lebanon, something like that. I think uh, the bond market has more or less priced in the, uh, the, the long end. Mm. I, think it's a, I think also that, the, um, that there's a lot of indecision in what I call the market subconscious about the, what the Fed is going to do. The people are getting awfully gassied up about another quarter point rate hike. I've been suggesting that one of the few things I may have got right, that they would be more 6% than 5 and 4 on the, on the Fed funds. Um, it's not to be forgotten that the tightening, the actual tightening, the reduction balance sheet only began in April or August of this year. So even though you've been raising the price of money, it's not been removing the, the amount of money in the system. Indeed, the Chicago Fed's for national conditions index still is, is very, very soft. In other words, there, there's, there's still expansion in the monetary system going on. But I think it's a lot of indecision about the direction of the Fed funds. And I think where the markets are, are going to be very surprised is when the Fed does not 
start cutting rates next year. I think it's going to be much more of a t what I call a table mountain. Being in Namibia, I suppose I would say that with South Africa, um, that the, 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 these, these rates, because of these structural inflation forces, stay high for much longer than we think. That means that real rates rise, and that then, of course, means a slowdown in the global economy yet again. I completely agree with Andrew on this one, and I think uh, the world has been very biased, and uh, mm. because of this exceptional quantitative easing policy, which is not a, st a normal uh, a normal environment, what we are now is back to a normal environment. Five and a half, six percent mm. is completely normal. Yes, mm. and we could stay in this environment for a very long time. Yes. And again, you know, we have a bit of um, uh, good numbers on the south side. Inflation is coming off, so the Fed has you know has plenty of time now to do and adjust what slightly on the upside or downside but they've got no reasons to cut back to two percent i mean the, the the economy is functioning inflation is coming back to normal normal levels why would they uh, start cutting rates mm. i mean the job the job of the the, the job of the, of the of the fed is not to stimulate the economy is to keep inflations yes around this, this target and that's what people are missing the central banks are not there to drive your economy but yes. just to to manage your money supply well done but if the Fed is data dependent, as, as it says, then surely it's got to raise rates, haven't it? Because if you look at the data between the last Fed meeting and now, we had that blowout uh, payrolls number. We've had stronger than expected uh, core CPI. And then last night, retail sales, much better than expected. How can you not raise rates? Well, I think they will have to. Um, also, because the per capita ex consumer expenditure, which is the, the one that they really look at, is still running, I believe, around three, three and a half percent. So that's still way above that two percent target of theirs. And I think they just a little bit like our weather forecasting service here. Note how many times we were getting Typhoon 8 signals now all of a sudden coming out of the woodwork. That's because people are scared. They made a mistake before with black rain. Now they want to sort of cover their backsides by hoisting the flag all the time. The same thing with the Fed. It wants to be Better safe than sorry is basically the message. In other words, we don't mind raising a little bit too much as long as then that inflation figure goes down. Mm. But it's sort of like this roller coaster ride that we're seeing in Treasury bonds at the moment. We, we keep seeing investors trying to catch the falling knife, don't we, every time they step in when they think that maybe um, these yields have, have peaked, only to find that they then get caught out by another uh, sort of spike upwards. But I think that the, the internet has, has, has fomented this a lot, just just the, the speed at which information whizzes around these days, the access of the retail market to the bond markets, which is, you know, is, is since our day in the markets. Um, I think those are major factors that exacerbate this, Peter. I don't know how you see it. Yeah, I think we also need to look where we were and where we are. So we went to zero to five percent on the ten-year. So there could be some adjustment. But mm. to be fair, even if uh, some adjustment of under the one percent, we're certainly closer to the bottom than we were when they started the the tightening. So I think the bond market is starting to stabilize from the monetary policy point of view. And after mm. that, if there's a if there's a credit issue, then it's a different story. And it could happen because we will see some stress at those levels. I mean, we will see some stress on the real estate. It's clearly happening in some of European countries. It will start to happen in the US. I think that's something that we'll also monitor because that could, have, that could uh, you know, snowball very, very quickly. So I think the Fed will keep an eye on this. But yeah, they have a bit of, uh, of room to maneuver still on the upside. And they should anyway. Okay, well, great to hear your thoughts. We covered quite a lot there, a lot going on at the moment this uh, this morning. That was Sam Favre, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Zia Von Fahl, who's Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> Peter Lewis's Money Talk. 
I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, look, we've been speaking quite regularly on Money Talk since, uh, well, back in June 2022. That's when we first uh, spoke with you. It sort of occurs to me that we've really been covering very much uh, the, the same issues on quite a regular basis over the last year and a half, which has been the weak yen, Japan's ultra-loose monetary policy, and when it's going to in that uh, Japan's attempts to try and boost wages, the poor demographics in terms of sort of low birth rate and, and people uh, living longer. Um, has anything actually changed in Japan over the past year and a half, given that we're still discussing the same issues and the same problems? Yeah, it's a very good point, Peter. I think, you know, as, as you rightly say, we have been discussing many of these issues over and over again. But I think it points more towards the persistence in the issues that are prevalent at that time. And I think that if we look at, for example, the situation with the yen, the fundamental uh, reason for that uh, weakness is still in place. If we go back to October 2022, um, I think at that time, if you remember, the US was talking about, you know, uh, changing its monetary policy. uh, And this had an impact on the, the level of the yen, whereby the yen appreciated at that time. Now, moving into 2023, we reverted back to what we had been discussing prior to October 2022 with more stickiness in U.S. inflation and therefore a reemergence of the the size of the yield spread that was in place prior to October 2022. And I think if you look at the yield spread now compared to October 2022, around about 400 basis points. So, you know, I think that it's in some sense unavoidable to talk about these issues again because the issue is still very relevant um, and th- there's a persistence there in, in the in the nature of of the event um now i think that another issue um which has perhaps become a little bit more persistent is on inflation in japan so if we look at the situation last year there was you know a wide uh, consensus that you know, this is a supply-driven type of a shock and it would dissipate over time. But, of course, as this persists, the extent to which um, one believes that it would simply dissipate um, goes away a little bit. And I think that there is some sense that, you know, there is some more sustainability in the inflation outlook uh, than we had perhaps thought back over a year ago. And if you listen to the reports, um, that also suggests that the, the Bank of Japan feels the same way. There's been that report in Kyoto News and then sort of pretty well repeated on Bloomberg yesterday that the Bank of Japan's considering raising its inflation forecast for this year and next year. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I think that this really speaks to what uh, the, the market view is in that, you know, there is some um, consensus that inflation is likely to remain above target during the next year, during 2024, and and may converge towards that target level uh, the following year in 2025. But certainly, you know, comparing what we had been discussing last year to this year, the inflation outlook is something that has certainly changed in terms of uh, its persistence and in terms of its drivers, which are now not really all about the supply side there is a, a certain demand component there and we can clearly see this in the change in uh, the nature of the pass through from uh, prices to consumers um, and and the narrowing in the in the divergence between ppi and cpi over the past year for example which has come much closer which points towards um the, the, the view that 
you know, these prices are being passed on uh, to, to consumers. And then the real question is, will it trigger uh, wage inflation? Will it trigger rise in nominal wages, which would, of course, make it more sustainable um, o- over the longer term? And this has been a long-term battle, hasn't it, for for Japan, not just over the last year and a half, but for for years and for decades, in fact. How does it get um, wage inflation? How does it get wages to go up, particularly when companies are sitting on huge amounts of cash but don't seem to want to spend it? Yeah, I I think that, you know, over the last decades, deflation and and, and very low levels of inflation, economic stagnation has really um, made it difficult to you know, stimulate an environment of, of rising wages. And I think that's what we have seen over the past year, that um, inflation, persistence, and the pass-through of uh, prices from uh, firms to consumers uh, will help to, you know, change this, uh, basically this mindset. And, and perhaps we will see um, some sustained increase in nominal wages. Of course, at the moment, we are still seeing inflation outstripping nominal wage growth. Mm. Um, and a lot needs to be uh, done in that regards to to uh, sort of uh, at least rebalance nominal wage growth with, with inflation. And I think that, um, you know, a, a lot will be determined by what we will see in the next round of no- wage negotiations in April 2024. This must presumably be a political nightmare for the government because the last thing that it wants is to have inflation, but wages not keeping up with it. And therefore, uh, the Japanese consumer, the Japanese uh, employee, not feeling that uh, their, their wages are, are keeping up with prices. That's right. I, I think, you know, one of the issues is that we continue to have some supply side type shocks affecting inflation. So um, the the real challenge is to generate domestic demand driven inflation. Um, And when that really takes hold, I think that there will be more um, sense that uh, nominal wage rises can actually take place. But at the moment, there is some uncertainty on what the the level of inflation is stripping out the supply side factor. Um, So you know, we're looking at still above 3%. Um, and with supply side, external price pressures, cost pressures still having a role to play. So I think there's still some uncertainty on what the true level of uh, inflation is from the demand side. But presumably, the Bank of Japan is going to have to move in some way soon, isn't it? It's stuck at pretty well the same monetary policy stance all the time we've been talking, although it did widen the band uh, last year for its yield control curve policy. But even if it's not going to move off of the current level of interest rates, presumably this uh, this yield curve control policy is on its last legs. Well, the yield curve control policy was already tweaked. I think the the band for the the long uh, the ten year bond was uh, widened uh, to you know up to one percent. I think it's around trading at point eight percent at the moment. Um, so there is some flexibility there. But I think that um, you know the, the the rationale for for this tweak was around enhancing market functioning and not really giving the signal that it was in relation to um, a monetary policy tightening uh, type of uh, objective. So I think that um, as it would become more apparent that inflation would remain um, above the uh, target of 2% in a more sustainable way, then 
you know, we, we could see some moves, but at the moment we we don't uh, see that materializing. Now, one thing, yeah. one thing that has changed, I think, over the year and a half, the past year and a half, is, is investment is booming into Japan now, isn't it? Why, why is that? Why has that changed? Well, I think it's uh, closely linked to what we have just discussed. So I think the, the level of the yen, so the depreciation in the yen over the past you know, two years is one factor. Um, some improvement in um, you know, the broader outlook for the economy over the longer term is another important factor. And, you know, inflation creeping into the economy is also helping in terms of uh, enabling uh, price increases. And there's also a sense, I would say, that, you know, stock market in Japan is undervalued in some uh, key sectors. And this can, of course, stimulate uh, inflows of capital. Um, as you know, there are, there are um, you know, efforts being made at improving governance in uh, the Japanese stock market, which will um, be also beneficial for, for encouraging investment over the longer term. And, and this will, of course, uh, help with stock prices. And um, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, he's, he's encouraging that foreign investment, isn't he? He held a summit with uh, some fund managers. I think the BlackRock uh, chief executive Larry Fink was there with global sovereign wealth fund managers. He wants them to port more of their $18 trillion of assets that they manage in, into Japan. Although it seems to me uh, it's pushing on an open door there. They aren't doing that anyway at the moment, aren't they? Yes, I think that there's a huge growth potential there. And if you take that uh, into account in conjunction with uh, underlying macro conditions with the exchange rate, with inflation, with improvements um, that are underway as regards, uh, you know, reform and improving corporate valuation. I think that this really is, um, you know, underlying the large push to to uh, trigger uh, inward investment by by very large investors from abroad. It does strike me, though, that maybe uh, Mr. Kashida's looking in the wrong direction. Foreign investors are investing in Japan, but maybe shouldn't he also be encouraging more domestic investment uh, into the stock market? Because there's like 14 trillion US dollars worth of, of household savings. If some of that was deployed into the market, it would make quite a big difference, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. This is a, a very good point. And I think that, you know, to some extent, it would involve um a really uh, a, a change in mindset. Um, Japanese, uh, you know, savers are very risk averse, particularly what happened over the past number of decades. So there would need to be uh, clarity on incentives, uh, clarity on um, the growth potential, but also clarity on, um, you know, the, the risk uh, profile with such investment. And I think that um, this would require um, a lot of a lot of work for it to materialize and presumably despite the the booming stock market that we've seen uh, so far this year the one thing where the japanese markets lag behind their foreign counterparts is in ipos we don't see the same sort of healthy ipo markets in japan maybe that we've seen elsewhere japanese companies often prefer to go and list overseas rather than in japan what why is that yeah well i think it's closely related to you know the issues around uh, risk aversion and, and maintaining uh, control. I think um, one factor will be going forward to encourage more of this type of I IPO activity, which can, of course, be beneficial over the longer term in terms of improving uh, productivity in the economy, 
improving different measures of competitiveness in the economy and also, of course, uh, contributing to potential output growth. Now, we've, we've seen a big change in corporate governance, haven't we? That's, and that's been a big boost for the market, particularly um, encouraging foreign investors to come in on the basis that uh, the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange the authorities want to see um, higher valuations, better um, corporate governance. Uh, the uh, the chairman of the Japan uh, Japan Exchange Group gave an interview to the FT, and he was talking about um, basically compiling a list every month that's going to be published every month of companies that are doing well in terms of corporate governance and making progress towards lifting uh, shareholder value, which presumably is designed to shame those that don't appear on that uh, that list. But what do you make of that initiative? Well, I think that it can have some positive uh, outcome. For example. If we look at uh, firms listed that have price-to-book values of lower than one, they have improved significantly over the past uh, year or so. And I think that you know this will help if we are interested in encouraging investment from abroad. If you know it's believed that um, valuations will be helped in the future, it can only be beneficial um, over the longer term to um, proceed with these types of governance enhancing type measures mm. but boards do still have some um things going on in japan that really wouldn't meet international standards for example these poison pill measures that stop majority shareholders um having their say in the company there, there's still too much of that isn't there that's right I, I think that you know there are obviously uh different obstacles um but over the over the longer term i think that if one is interested in enhancing the potential output of the economy and also, you know, uh, moving away from economic sort of stagnation that has been uh, prevalent over the past decades, one issue will be to um, improve uh, corporate value, improve valuations in the stock market and to move away from um, these types of uh, more stagnant uh, type of um, policies and, um, you know, mechanisms that can um, go against improving uh, shareholder value and uh, stock market value. John, always fascinating to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with the show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Please catch me again tomorrow. Money Talk.